Hi, folks. Before we get started with this episode, I want to put in a few content warnings. Nestor Machno's life was fascinating, and he was a really interesting person, but it was also really sad. So content warning for mental health, war and guns, child abuse, suicide, and death from lung illnesses. Also, not a content warning, but just an FYI, we tried a different recording setup and it didn't work very well. So I tried to clean it up as much as I could, but please forgive some of the uh, messiness in that regard. Okay, here we go. I put you in my pocket Push the button through the hole to lock it Hold on to you, you like a treasure Walk across my hand, it'd be a pleasure You could come with me You could come with me Welcome to D-Listers of History, a podcast about interesting people you probably didn't learn about in school. This is Fega, your very piano-playing historian, apparently. I'm teaching and, piano lessons now. Yes. <laughs> and I'm Isa. If you look up my name on Google right now, it just says critic. So <laughs> according to Google, I am critic. <laughs> And we have a guest with us, Charlie Allison, um, and I literally copied and pasted your um, your bio from the book listing on Amazon. Yeah, that'll do it. Uh, so Charlie Allison is a writer, researcher, and storyteller based in Philadelphia. Charlie has worked as a gardener, tutor to children with learning disabilities, an English teacher, chess instructor, and as a bureaucrat. He has published short stories in Pickman's Press, Podcastle, and Sea Lion Press. He currently runs his own website at charlie-allison.com, where the genesis for this book, the one we're about to talk about, uh, was formed as a series of YouTube videos with the help of Sewer Rats Productions. He is active in the Philadelphia storytelling and mutual aid communities. Charlie is frequently bullied by his cats in the small hours of the morning, which I think we can all... We can all share hardships in that way you know yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes uh and the book i don't have him hold on <laughs> long time listeners know long time listeners know that i'm never prepared um no harmless power the life and times of the ukrainian anarchist i don't know how to say his name nestor Machno. Machno. Yeah. hey i got it right yeah <laughs> or at least close mm -hmm. um and this guy, when I got a, um, a reach out about this, I was so excited because this guy is like exactly the sort of person that I always want to cover in this podcast, which is like, if you are, if, if you're, if it's a space that you are familiar with in history, there's a lot of information there, but the average, even like person who's interested in history, if it's not your realm, you have no idea who this guy was. Mm. Like, I was like, I don't know who this is. He sounds cool. <laughs> and, oh, boy, was he was he a person. He was a whole person. <laughs> um, so I said this beforehand, but I'm Russian history, Ukrainian history, not my strong suit. Um, I was thinking about, like, where do I know what I think I know about the Russian Revolution? And I realized it entirely came from two things. Uh, the... Uh, Bluth movie, Anastasia. 
about to make that <laughs> and weirdly my school my my middle school went to see an exhibit on the romanovs hmm. huh. um and my school was 40 percent jewish the bulk of which were ashkenazi jews <laughs> and the entire thrust of this exhibit was like isn't it so sad what happened to them oh lord and I know, right? Charlie's making a very good face. Um, that sure is a and position. And at the time, the irony did not did not occur to me because I was 12, and all I knew about Russian history at that time was Anastasia. <laughs> so it was like fun singing and dancing and pretty ladies pretty dresses. in dresses or whatever. Fega, quick um, question. Yeah. W will there be an appropriate time in the course of this episode to bring up the Rosh Hashanah cards? Uh making fun sure. of both Alexander and Nikki. So this might be the time because honestly, okay. uh, Zar Nicholas okay. does not feature very prominently. Okay. All right. He's almost so, impossible no. to parody. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie, I judging by the the art in this book and other books, um, I think this is something you'll enjoy. The so it is Rosh Hashanah is just past us. We have just gotten past Rosh Hashanah. Um, and one tradition um, among Ashkenazim in particular is to send Rosh Hashanah cards or Shona, Shona Toivis. And they, um, this goes back to like the 1400s in Germany, but in the 1860s, it kind of exploded because the postcard was popularized. Um, and by the 1880s, Usually, usually there are just like cards like with rabbis on them or like of like Rosh Hashanah celebrations, like Thanksgiving type, you know, scenes, like people eating dinner, happy, you know, or doing like Rosh Hashanah rituals or whatever. But then they started getting political. And by like 18, I think one of them. So the first one was in the 1889, the New York um, Yiddish Volkszeitung, the New York um, like Yiddish workers newspaper published a print um that it was made into a rosh hashanah card of i think it was alexander the first one was alexander the second which was a a chicken with his head on it um and and what that and then this happened again um in 1917 um rosh hashanah 1917 which you know a very pregnant month um, <laughs> and Again, it was a rabbi this time holding a chicken with Nicholas's, Tsar Nicholas's head on it. And the symbol, the symbol of the chicken with the head on it means that he's going to practice, um, oh my gosh, kaparot, which is a ceremony where you take a chicken and you swing it above your head and, it's, <laughs> <laughs> and you transfer all of your sins from the last year onto the chicken, which is then swung over your head and then you slaughter it and then give the, give the meat to a needy family. So <laughs> basically it's all being like, yeah, the Tsar is going to be my kaparot. I will slaughter him and he will uh, be the scapegoat for my sins. And then that he was slaughtered, which is great. Fantastic. <laughs> That's my new favorite thing I didn't even know I needed to know. You you need to know. You need to see these things. I put out the call, and I now do have an artist called Pomegranate Witch. Or I, I don't know. I have an artist. I know this artist who put um, Mitch McConnell's head on there. She put, um, you know, Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene, uh, Elon Musk also. You know, a few, few good people that could serve as a, a sacrificial chicken. <laughs> 
Nice. Solid choices. <laughs> excellent. Um, okay. So I have no no transition for that, so I'm just going to go into it. <laughs> um, so Nest, Nestor uh, Machno mm-hmm. was born November 7th, 1888, which I think is our calendar Yeah, for that. There's like different calendars. Yeah, the, the uh, traditional Russian calendar, if I'm remembering right, um, and there's no reason I would remember exactly right, was three weeks ahead, and there was a huge amount of uh confusion during the revolutions of what wait what calendar are we, are we using uh so it's it's a little bit awkward it's like um, um betsy ross was born like the first day of the new setup of our calendar hmm. um which is just a weird little tidbit that has nothing to do with this so he was uh born in november 7th 1888 uh to a poor peasant family and we're gonna try uh hulia pole Julia Polier, if Julia, I'm saying it right, which I'm not sure. Julia Polier. Well, we're going to go with that. Yep. Um, which at the time was a part of the Russian Empire. Um, now that area is Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And his parents were former serfs. They were emancipated in 1861. This is one of those things that I should know more about than I do. Um, it's pretty similar to Reconstruction uh, or the lack thereof. Yeah. Um, where but with feudalism. They were, yeah, they were like attached to the land in the way that like peasants in Western Europe would have been, right? Yeah. Uh, the the only difference was, so Machno's uh, mother and father had both been serfs at one point. So 1861 rolls around, serfdom's abolished. Well, all right, that sounds pretty good. Uh, but much like with Reconstruction, um, abolished, asterisk, uh, you can still hire back your old serfs for, you know, pennies on the dollar, functionally. And so serfdom's gone, but wage labor is the new hotness, baby. Woo-woo. Like, oh, oh, this is real bad. Um, fuck. Yeah, and uh, great time to be alive, uh, <laughs> to be a small child, like Nestor. So Machno's father died when he was very, very young. And it sounds like he bounced around a little bit, like he was fostered by another family, but he was, like, miserable, and so he, like, went back to his mom, who sounded, like, a little complicated, too. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, Machno loved his mother, but even he said in his uh, his diaries, or not diaries, his, um, his recollections, uh, my mother seemed to believe that she was the only person on earth uh, who was allowed to beat me. Um, which, you know, is, is pretty accurate. Um, so he's fond of her and like deeply resents it when, you know, Machno or Nestor is, um, working as a farmhand and works at a little bit of everything. And so when he's beaten by, um, uh, his employers, he gets, you know, rather pissed off. Um, there are a whole bunch of incidents like that. Um, so many in this era. Um, yeah, he, he works and actually I thought I found this, this period about his, um, childhood really interesting because there are a couple of things. One, and this is just, I think my lack of knowledge was he went, he went to school alongside working. Whereas like in the United States, a lot of times people just didn't go to school, but he was like, he would like skip school to go like ice skating and stuff, which Mm -hmm. I think is really darling. Um, Especially like getting to know him a little more through the book as an adult, like the image of him as this like kid who's just like ice skating in Ukraine. It's just, it's really charming. Um, Especially because 
oh boy, did this man need therapy. Um, I think everyone, so, everyone needs so much. Yeah. Like I was reading this book and as I was going, I was like, wow, he needs, wow. He, no, no, he needs more. Oh, okay. He needs even more therapy. This poor man. But he also worked, like you said, as a farmhand. And uh, he was a bit of a theater kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair to say. You want to talk about that? Because so, that's amazing. So, <laughs> Master Machno only had, I guess, the the rough equivalent of like a middle school education, uh, because you know you go to school and you work, but you can't do do both forever. But one of the things he was very good at and very much enjoyed was signing up to work with the local theater troupe, which is you know a, a fun thing where you basically get to play dress up and use the vast power of your imagination. And Machno was extremely good at this. And he was never like a tall or imposing fellow. So he would often get cast in the the feminine roles and got very good at dressing up in drag, uh, in effect, to to do this. Uh, The reason I say this is because later on in the revolution, he would use this talent he learned in his childhood to go and like spy on enemy positions in person, like, no, it's just me, old lady, definitely not Nestor Machno. Uh, you know, I've got a shawl, I'm hunched over. Oh, those, those look like some very intimidating artillery positions. Take a little note there. <laughs> ah, well, back to go over to where old ladies go, effectively. So he's, he's very good at subterfuge on a personal level. And there are a whole bunch of incidents about this uh, in the revolution and the civil war that follows it. Uh, so many that I, I couldn't list them all. And so I just sort of put it in the book as Machno did this over and over again. If I put these into the narrative as they happen, the book will never get done. Yeah, um, like, that was a lot of stuff. There, there's, there was a lot going on oh God, <laughs> around him. All at once forever. Um, so one thing I thought was interesting, especially that we are all in Pennsylvania, was that he went to work for Mennonites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't know about this, and I kind of want to just sort of take a step back and talk about, like, just sort of what's going on in the sort of social structure around Machno as he's growing up, because there's a lot going on in that time frame. So we've got the Mennonites who are German, German-speaking. German I know they're German, but mm-hmm. were they German-speaking? Uh, they- yes, German-speaking, uh, very German-inflected. They kind of held themselves as a people apart from ethnic Ukrainians. Um the, the backstory on that is basically um, slight digression. After Catherine the Great sort of absorbed Ukraine into the Russian Empire, well, she mostly depopulated vast swaths of it and like, shit, I need people here or else I can't get I can't get like tax money and stuff. So like, you know, basically puts a big one ad people who will live in, you know, southeast Ukraine. You get tax breaks. You get property. You can make alcohol, which is previously a state monopoly. And the Mennonites, who came from Central Europe, a lot of uh, mostly German inflected, uh, answered that, took her up on that deal, and formed what were called colonies, right? Mennonite colonies, which are, you know, large landholding estates that Machno knew very well uh, as a child. He worked on their farms and uh, perhaps, you know, to, to make it more interesting and perhaps less uh, master-slave relationship, uh, made friends with uh, a lot of the Mennonite kids and, like, played with them. Uh, so he got to know them personally. Uh, this this came in handy for 
uh, if you were a childhood friend of Nestor Machno's during the Russian Civil War on more than one occasion. Like, well, da, 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 da. I know that guy. Back off, back off. He's fine. We used to play like, uh, this guy's tag. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a pass. Uh, I, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a lot of really good scholarship on Machno and the Mennonites in particular. The the best of them, uh, the absolute best, it's um, uh, a book just talking about Machno's relationship with the Mennonites is by Sean Patterson uh, up in Canada. Uh, the book's called Mac- Machno and Memory, and it examines these relationships and how uh, the Machnovists saw the Mennonites and how the Mennonites saw the Machnovists. Uh, it's a, a very complicated and interesting picture that I am not qualified to get into, but that's an excellent book if you want to dig into it. Yeah, I was really I was really struck by that relationship with mm. the Mennonite children that there was that that permeation, I guess you might call it. Yeah, permeation is a great word for it. Um, yeah, so you've got you've got the Mennonites, you've got the peasants, obviously, and how much of an impact were like. You had like smaller, like larger land owning folks, but they weren't like as like there was there seemed to be this like bourgeoisie class that wasn't necessarily Mennonites. Yeah. Am I right in that way? Uh, Yeah, it it could go, I think, either way. Uh, The Mennonites had a lot of uh, political and economic power in their spheres. Uh, There there was a Ukrainian middle class, but. Uh, like like I talk about in the 1905 revolution, um, my, my treatment of it, uh, they, they kind of work in concert, Mennonite or not, uh, to help put down the sort of abortive first Russian revolution, which is something that people remember come 1917. Um, they tend to. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Mokno was like a bit of a rabble rouser from Jump. Um, like I... So usually how I do this is I read the books and then to get the like, especially for eras like this, I don't know that much about. I'll use like Wikipedia just to get the this. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember if this was in the book, but it made me laugh. Um, I think it was that he led a little mini workers revolt on one of the farms he worked on in 1902 because he like saw some kid getting beat up by the landlord's son and was like, no. No, we're not doing this. And he's like 14 or something at the time. Like, it's, I, I love it. Yeah, uh, that's that's broadly right. Um, uh, again, the, the the ability to talk about specifics um, is something I have to give entirely credit to, like, uh, Malcolm Archibald out of mm-hmm. um, Edmonton, Canada, is responsible for translating uh, whole libraries of Machnovist-related stuff out of uh, Russian and into English. And he uh, actually translated some of Machno's early writings where he talks about this. Uh, it's actually, Machno doesn't start the uprising. Um, the uh, person being beaten is another one of the day laborers. And it's um, another laborer, Vanya, who uh, Machno kind of looks up to as like a big brother figure or a mentor who's like, all right, what the fuck is this? And they pick up everything they can, anything sharp, pitchforks, hose, not, uh, threshing stuff, and march on the house. The person who's beating the worker immediately flees when a bunch of people start arming. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, they march on the house, and the la- the landowner is like, whoa, 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 what the fuck did you 
do? He's talking to his son who's just yeah. being an asshole. He's like, whoa, 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 we can talk this out. We can talk this out. He'll never do that again. I'll make sure of that. Let's let's calm it down now. And, you know, this is more than the workers had expected. And, you know, um, usually negotiation was not the first thing that the upper classes tried if you were uh, insubordinate. But Makhno says in his writings that um, Vanya instructed him always to have something sharp uh, within arm's reach just in case someone ever tried that again. So don't let ever anyone ever hit you again. It was a rather formative or important uh, experience with uh, uh, shaping Machno's idea of direct action. Yeah, and you definitely see that yeah. as you go forward. So we had the 1905 revolution, um, which is the 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 one where the czar stays but there's a doma yeah the duma uh, yeah but... duma yeah um that he has to share power with so what is a what is a duma sorry it's a leg- it was like a it was like a advisory council right pretty much like congress but worse okay um, they were appointed weren't they yeah so in in the wake of the 1905 revolution uh nicholas uh, does basically what the Bolsheviks do uh, at the later stage of the revolution, uh, or the Civil War, I should say, which is he cedes economic concessions from the revolution, but he gives almost no political ones. He creates the Duma, yes, but he has veto power over them, and they can't do shit about him. So they're not really as advisory. They're just kind of there to look good. They're just hanging out. Um, And so... Well, I mean, I hanging out. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I got, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hanging out. And, and, and the first a couple propositions for the composition of the Duma were vetoed. And they were like, you know, made up of people from all works of society. Eh, no. <laughs> uh, the upper class of society. Better. Tippity top of society. Perfect. <laughs> um, broadly speaking. And this is... Um, pretty much what the Bolsheviks do uh, at the beginning of the third revolution, which is like put in the new economic policy, which, you know, is like, congratulations, have some more capitalism. Um, Well, we'll give you merchant rights, but we won't uh, allow other political parties or a free press or the right of workers to organize. We'll just make it slightly more tolerable and gamble that you'll be like better than nothing. And off you go. Uh, in both cha- in both cases, this kind of works uh, and uh, diffuses uh, the revolutions enough to be contained. For the moment, anyway. For the moment, anyway. The moment. Yeah. That's just a little 10-year timer on it. Yeah, so Makhno gets involved with the anarchists, eventually sort of kind of wanders around mm-hmm. movements, so ends up with the anarchists, and uh, manages to get thrown in prison mm-hmm. connected to a... Um, assassination, an assassination of an informant, and uh, he's he like he's in there. He he thinks he's going to be in there forever. Yeah, like he was going to be executed, and then they were like, "You're really young. We're not going to do that." <laughs> uh, yes, this is a, a surprising thing that came up when writing this this book was that uh, the Russian Empire, for all its many many flaws, uh, had a pretty generous, by our standards at least definition of what made someone an adult or not there are multiple anarchists who were caught up and due to be executed and just like not nah, you're too young you're under 21 uh can't can't give you the the old drop 
Machna was picked up for um, trying to or planning to blow up a, a secret police station. Right. That's what. Yeah. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. No. Dude, there's so much uh, spy versus spy stuff in Machna's life. Oh my gosh, life. it's so um, complicated. And to, to loop back to the theater kid thing, um, dressing up, uh, it wasn't Machno in the uh, one of the assassinations of informers, which were everywhere. Uh, but some of his comrades did dress up uh, in the clothing of the opposite sex just to get close enough to someone who knew, knew them by sight. And then, aha! You know, it's a very Bugs Bunny method of assassination. I mean, uh, if it works, it works. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it'll get your attention if you're if you're looking through the history of the uh, Russian anarchist movement of how often dressing uh, in, in the uh, different clothes will do something for you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, a lot. Russian theater is, you know... The top of the line, so it makes yeah. it kind of makes sense. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, and they've got that anarchist DIY ethos. Absolutely. And so Machno, he thinks he's gonna. This is why I think is so interesting. So he thinks he's gonna be in prison forever. Mm-hmm. Oh right, shit! I forgot why I interrupted. Sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, so, oh god, I have to. I didn't mention the bong incident. Um, so Machno's arrested. He's put in a, a local prison. Uh, he's in cuffs, Katorga, which are about eight pound weights on your ankles and your uh, wrists uh, held together by a chain at your waist and mm-hmm. never taken off, uh, which is super good for you, by the way. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's like Peloton, but more reasonable. Um, <laughs> yeah, No one's ever bludgeoned someone else to the death of the plunge- Peloton that I'm aware of. Anyway, so he's in a local jail and, you know, he's in with a bunch of other anarchists and they start slowly while their cases are being processed making efforts to escape they're filing through the bars um and things are going so well and the end is in sight that they're like you know this is great i think we can trade for a bong we're just gonna have a real just great time in prison and it's not that they're caught with the bong it's that a guard notices that they're smiling a lot (laughs) and no one smiles a lot in prison not in my prison search the cell well, they found the bong, sure, but what they could, which is, you know, I guess okay, but they couldn't disguise, like, ah, yes, these files that were are for medicinal purposes, right? You can't really excuse that. So that that doesn't uh... quite work, uh, and make sure that they are sent to a higher security prison somewhere else. Uh, going from comic to very dark, Machno doesn't know what his date of execution is, and so, like, a couple of his friends are just taken out and hung. Um, seemingly at random. Uh, and what gets Machno off the hook from the death sentence is, and onto the mere tri- trifling sentence of life wearing eight pound bracelets doing hard labor is his mother appealing to the local governor that her son uh, deserved mercy and was not uh, an adult when convicted. And this, this, um, uh, amnesty or this clemency came down very late down the line and, you know, saved Machno's life, but also got him, well, not directly as a result of, but he's ultimately moved to Bertkia uh, yes. prison in Moscow. Uh, so he is not just out of Ukraine. He is very out of Ukraine. Uh, so even if he escaped, he knows no one. Uh, no one's going to help this weird South Russian, which is the uh, Russian imperial term for people from Ukraine. 
incidentally, when you read Makarov's memoirs, whenever someone says, ah, yes, you're a South Russian, and you just sort of mentally hear Makhno say, Ukrainian. So it's a sort of like, <laughs> if Makhno thinks you're an asshole, he'll ha- he'll record that you said South Russian. Like Lenin refers to him as this. And you just see, at least I imagine Makhno just going like, uh-huh. Yeah, no, sure, you could say that. Anyway, I've dr- drifted from the point. No, Carry not on. really, um, because it's kind of what I want to talk about is his experiences in prison. So it was obviously terrible because he's wearing these, you know, eight-pound bracelets. And he was frequently ill, like super sick. Mm. Like he got like, didn't he get typhus at this point? Oh, yeah. He got a punch card for lung diseases. Um, yeah, he did. <laughs> uh, so there's there's some interesting scholarship on this. Uh, the the many diseases of Nestor Machno is not a paper I'm aware of, but um, maybe it should be because bro struggled. Yeah. So Machno didn't have super strong lungs for a bunch of reasons. Part of it is it's speculated. Uh, the we we talked about him playing hooky and falling in the Geicher River mm-hmm. uh, while ice skating, right? Well, that, that's that's almost a hypothermia, baby. You only survive because your uncle lived nearby and, you know, warmed you up. And big surprise, his mom beat the crap out of him for that. How dare you make I'm sure that worry. helped a lot with it, uh, his lungs being yeah, no, crap beat out of him. Um, Archibald, that's sarcasm, friends. <laughs> everyone knows the cure for hypothermia is beatings, obviously. I mean, who doesn't a, know this? What a delightful parent. <laughs> um, but, but Mark... Uh, there's some literature. Or Archibald found a document from a Russian prison, Malcolm Archibald, the translator I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, claiming that they, in the course of one of Machno's prison sentences, removed an entire lung? Question what? mark? And oh. Machno doesn't mention this and doesn't even say, there's this weird scar down my chest and I can only breathe half as well. So, like, well, seems like with no other evidence... I don't think it's true, but someone wrote it down. That feels like something that would have come up. That you would have noticed, maybe. Um, and also, like, I'm also just thinking of what medical care was like at that, not in great. that era. And just surviving an operation like that would be... Mm. I mean, it's impressive today. Yeah. When we're not, like, you know, going from one patient and then sticking your dirty hands in the next one. Um, actually, this might be post-hand washing. No, this is, I think... We're germ on the theory cusp is of it. pretty well known, I guess. Yeah, but like there's germ theory and then there's hand washing. You make a point there. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. We're, we're in the transitional time, I think, via hand washing. Yeah, the... That might be entirely wrong. I'll correct it in post if I'm wrong. I was wrong. Hand washing was first introduced in the West by Florence Nightingale in the mid-19th century. Although I will note that hand-washing was not a thing during the American Civil War, which is where I got this from. But by this point, hand-washing would have been pretty standard. It is sort of interesting tidbit, though. It didn't become officially required, I guess, in certain medical settings in the United States till the 1980s, although they certainly were washing hands before that. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Great hand washing, <laughs> non hand washing changeover. I mean, it's important, man. I mean, it ain't wrong. Um, but it's not all. Well, it's not all bad in prison. Um, he he meets uh, Peter Arshinov, mm-hmm. who is an important mentor who sh- pops up just like yeah all the time. He just keeps popping up. Yep. Um, and he learns a ton. Like this is what I found really impressive is that he. Thinks that he's in prison forever. He's in this really awful prison in Moscow. And he's like in book clubs. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, the the Bertiga prison in Moscow had, you know, according to Makhno and other radicals, specifically political prisoners, uh, fucking great library. Uh, really good. A lot of radical literature. Um, yeah, like anarchist literature. Oh, yeah. Specifically. This is where Makhno gets uh, a hold of mutual aid um, by Kropotkin reads the crap out of it and according to him and other people who are in jail with him uh he would not shut the fuck up about it and would like corner people in the hallway and like have you read this let me tell you my feelings about this and i'm like i can i can relate um kropotkin's fun uh we uh frequently on this podcast we'll think about like what historical figures if they had today's like technology and stuff what they would do and 100 percent, this man would have had a podcast oh yeah like <laughs> absolutely and he would not be on twitter because fuck elon musk yeah that's <laughs> well, fuck elon musk and he probably just had too much to say like i can't think it sounds like he probably couldn't he couldn't fit it all in 140 characters or however much we have yeah, yeah. i don't know because i i haven't been on twitter since decades Mm. um way before the the event um yeah this podcast does not have a twitter an x oh i don't know whatever anyway (laughs) uh so he's in prison he learns a whole lot about anarchy and other stuff he didn't you like carry that book around with him oh yeah like i just Um, i just think that's so there's so much about this man that is just so darling no no like i just want to give him a hug at various points in his life yeah um, and he would not accept, but he, I... <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I don't know. I, he might've been, especially in his youth, more of a True. hug it out sort of guy. He might've been. Um, he was, I, I loved how in the book you, you pointed out how emotional mm-hmm. he was at various points. Cause especially like, I know as an American, my perception of having grown up in this like post, uh, fall of the wall and like transitioning into Putin life, like my perception of Russians is very like that they're very f- serious and firm and like unemotional and mean and like all mm-hmm. this stuff. And I love that you took the time to point out like, like actually what we're just transitioning into now, if I'm remembering it correctly, there's a lot of, and then the, the <laughs> so much happens in man's life. So I'm 100% going to keep mixing up yeah, yeah, yeah. things that happened where, cause it was a lot, but I believe this was one where he, he's released from, from prison because all the political prisoners were released as part of the February revolution in 1917. Yep. Um, and he goes home and finds out that one of his brothers has died. Um, his mother's house is destroyed. Did, I, did he think his mother had died too? I can't remember. Uh, that's she hadn't. About but about like... a year later. Uh, okay. A second trip from Moscow. But uh, if we were talking about him getting out of prison, um, yeah, he comes back to a, a very much different hometown. Like no one expects, you know, in prison for life. You don't really ask. So when are you getting out, Nestor? Well, it does kind of say for life there. So Machno himself writes in his diaries, you know, I'm, uh, it was like a man come back from the dead. Uh, everyone seemed uh, very surprised to see him and all the other uh, radical prisoners that have been released. And so there's a lot of the old, uh, ha I was a police officer when you were arrested. Good to see you, buddy. And that was one of the moments, right? This is one of the moments where Nestor Machno has what is, I guess we would call now, 
uh, a near nervous breakdown. This it guy. Like a pan- it sounded like a panic attack yeah. from your description. Yeah, like- yeah, yeah. Nervous breakdown or a panic attack. Um, this guy, Onyshenko, was a police officer, now former police officer because of the February, uh, February Revolution. Uh, but he Makhno had beef with him because at one point in the past he had harassed Makhno's mom and struck her in the face. So that's that's a recipe for some bad times for you if you're Onyshenko. Uh, and so Onyshenko gives him Makhno, passing him in the street. It's very cheery, very false, very bright. Hey, how you doing, Nestor Ivanovich? And Makhno screams, get the fuck, in effect, get the fuck away from me, you scoundrel, or I'll put a bullet in you. And he goes for his gun. And Onyshenko's like, oh boy. And Makhno runs off and collapses in a cafe for quite some time, just uh, traumatized out of his mind. He ultimately justifies him not shooting Onyshenko in the street by saying, you know, listen, there are a lot of ex-police officers out there and Onyshenko is among the least dangerous of them. And if we just go around killing people, uh, the dangerous ones are going to get a lot harder to find. This is also the period they're going through old police stations and finding out which of their old friends and comrades had been informers. So it's a a pretty emotionally charged time of like this person who always I, I always trusted them. Uh, turns out he was taking money to snitch on us. So there's there's a lot of emotional horror. Yeah. Uh, even if that's the only thing that happened that year, that's that's a lot to go through. And it was not the only thing that was happening that yeah, year. Yeah, and I just I really like it's easy. I think in a lot of um, a lot of history books. <laughs> As you and I both read. Mm. A lot of times, there's there's a, a a tendency to shy away from this sort of aspect of these things because he was, as we can continue going through his life, he was a badass, mm-hmm. like universally. Um, and it's really, I think, great to be like he was a badass, and he had a nervous breakdown when he saw somebody who like traumatized him, like that. These are things that exist in the same person. I think it's really like fantastic to have in the book. Yeah. Um. So he uh. He 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 starts doing uh doing his thing, right? He comes back to, I I don't remember how to say it. Julia, Julia. Thank you. We're just gonna we're just gonna use that. Um, <laughs> and it's like a loop. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, I love it's very pretty looking on the page. Like I love seeing it written out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he starts like doing his anarchy thing, right? Like he starts like organizing people and um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it depends on. Uh, oh God, Machno's memoirs are, are fascinating and also just frustrating. Uh, for for what he leaves out, uh, he does start agitating and organizing. The People's Committee for the Defense of the Revolution is basically teams of peasants who go out to the landed estates, uh, with guns and a writ from the cent- the the committee, basically disarming the middle class so they can't do what they did during the 1905 revolution, which is basically team up with the government to privatize land and keep the the serfs down. And so there's a lot of confiscating of weapons, but they also give them an on-ramp. Like, listen, we're not completely, completely against you. Like if, if you have a 300 acre farm and you employed 20 workers to work it, you know, during this expropriation, you would get an equal amount that all your workers are now getting, right? You'd have all you need to survive in rural Ukraine. Like, uh, plow, horse, whatever, from the central thing. Like you, you, you can be integrated into the the early revolutionary movement. What Machno does not mention in the early part of this this sort of proto uh, phase is that he he had been exchanging letters with 
uh, a woman in Julier Polier, and they, uh, when he got out of prison, got busy, hooked up, and she had a kid uh, inside Julier Polier, and the child didn't live longer than uh, a couple of days. And uh, the woman left and lived to at least 1930, we know. I, I know her name's in the book, but it eludes me at the moment. But Machner doesn't write about that. It is it is uh, own autobiography. He, he doesn't really say much uh, about this. So it's, it's always interesting to see what uh, people, when they write their own history, leave oh, yeah. out. Like, no, 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 the revolution was important. I also had a kid. But uh, anyway, and the revolution was happening. It was super traumatizing. It was super traumatizing, <laughs> probably. I don't um, you just brush it off. But I was really impressed. Like, it, throughout this, you can see Machno trying to hold up to his ideals. Mm -hmm. So, like, the thing of, like, the, you know, the, the, the previous landowners being like, listen, you can have the same thing everybody else has. And obviously a lot of them, as soon as they had opportunities to go back to the old way, did, did. that. Yep. But like I, ha I like this idea that they were given the opportunity to do the right thing, yeah. essentially, um, uh, even if many of them did not. Part, part of the reason for, for this, I, 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 this is conjecture, mm -hmm. but it, it seems that the history argues that Machno had been in prison or arrested uh, plenty of times as a kid, and it wasn't always comrades who bailed him out. Like mm -hmm. more than a few times, it was rich or middle class business owners who remembered the Machno kid and like, yeah, I'll pay your bail. Don't do that again. Well, I'm gonna do it again, but thanks. <laughs> uh, so like for I think Sean Patterson's beautiful phrase for it is, uh, Machno didn't view class as a fixed state, and, and uh, definitely played that up in the early revolutionary period to try to get everyone on board. You gave me a wonderful transition point here. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to take it. Um, Go for it. So this this sort of uh, anarchist structure does very well. But we have to remember that World War One's kind of still going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, that we're means... in 1917. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, okay. And this means that uh, the German Mennonites uh, are... A little chummier, let's put it that way, or are believed to be a little chummier with the Austro-Hungarians, which are, you know, German-inflected or German-culturally people. So a lot of the landlords who run go to the Austro-Hungarians for guns, money, and training to go and get their estates back, which leads to some kerfluffles. Um, this is the the beginning of it getting really complicated really, for yeah, a long a time. A lot of moving pieces. Yeah, which uh, we're not going to go through all of them because we don't have time. But <laughs> one last thing before we proceed, yes, please. <laughs> um, uh, again, Patterson makes a very good point that uh, not all the Mennonites who, by their religious code, are pacifists. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, think of them. Well, they're obviously different in a lot of principle respects, but the Amish. Are also pacifists, right? Yeah, like, I mean, we well, they're from the same trunk or same whatever. tree, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the Mennonites that went for uh, the Austro-Hungarians' guns, money, and officers and troops uh, were excoriated by a lot of Mennonite uh, diarists, activists, who said, "Oh, oh, so you're a pacifist as long as things are going fine. You're, but the second that someone offers you a gun to get your land back, suddenly our central religious teaching is nothing to you." So it's it's not a monolithic force. There's a lot no. of uh, dissent for various reasons inside the Mennonite community once it starts. And there's a lot of just through, like the um, like the invasion of Austro-Hungarians and and just moving forward basically from this point, we've got a couple like 
primary actors that I want to point out um, and my understanding of who they are. So uh, so we have the anarchists, obviously, which tend to go by the black army or the black flag. Uh, yeah, they, they tend to use uh, the black flag. Yeah, black flag. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Bolsheviks, who are our friends Lenin, etc. Yeah. And they're the red army. And then you have the Ukrainian nationalists. Gross. Who are the white army. Not quite oh uh, okay no, no 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 you thought it was complicated there's a whole other actor oh, good. ukrainian nationalists are, are kind of um at least in the russian civil war they're kind of opportunistic um they, they want autonomy and independence for ukraine but they don't think that like things like private property should be touched or they're not against like say pogroms right? yeah like petluria is big into that Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least the the nationalist army under Petluria was famous for it. Uh, the white army is kind of the old Russian military caste bourgeoisie, the Orthodox Church. Like they're all the upper class from the old empire who want to wave back everything into a wave of counter revolution. So it goes: anarchist Bolsheviks, uh, Ukrainian nationalists, um, white army. Oh shit! Did I forget? Oh, I forgot someone. Um, oh yeah, and they're independent uh, warlord bands that just mm. want like like the um, uh, Grigoriev and like the Cossacks and stuff. Uh, yeah, right? the co- there are a lot of Cossacks, Cossack yeah. bands that go back and forth uh, depending on uh, what they felt like and um, what what's the best position. Yeah. Uh, Speaking so, of pogroms. Uh, <laughs> oh god, yeah, no, it's it's real fucking bad. Uh, Makno, I, I uh, I'm happy to say was. One of the few forces in the Russian Civil War that would not ask questions but would shoot pogromists on sight. Yeah, well, that's something I was impressed um, with him is, like, honestly, with this sort of time and place, if someone just didn't personally engage in a pogrom, I'd be like, good job. But he didn't <laughs> – like, you get a cookie. But he didn't just do that. Like, he stopped – actively stopped pogroms. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it made – it. it's incredible. Like, some of these moments you describe where it's like it sounds like they're, people are ready to go. Like, they're yeah. like – liquored up and whatever yeah and he just shows up and he's like no we're not doing this like jews are workers too like what are you doing yeah um and uh, it he, seems like he was really a singular voice in that regard yeah he uh the, if we're, if we're tra- tracking the roots of how nestor thought about this it after he comes back from moscow the second time he meets you know he uh meets kropotkin he gets mm-hmm. to have uh you know a, a couple of hour meeting with his idol uh and they get to chat it's a uh, a wonderful, heart, uh, heartwarming moment. And then uh, the, the sort of uh, shit sandwich he has to eat later is he has to go and talk to Lenin. Um, yes. Which is just... Uh, and Lenin, um, like, is, pretended it didn't happen well, and or it, something. Like <laughs> We only have two sources for this. And one is Makhno, who, while he'll leave some things out, he's not a liar. He doesn't he lies tend by to omission. make things up. Yeah. He'll, he'll leave things out, like the whole having a kid thing. But... You know, we have no reason to doubt this re- This happened. Uh, Victor Sergei, who might be one of the more well-known anarchist writers from this period, um, also, I think, makes reference to Makhno meeting Lenin at one point or another. Anyway, uh, that Lenin, uh, help, Lenin instructs the newly formed Bolshevik government to help Makhno get back into Ukraine to destabilize it because they'd given it away to the Austro-Hungarians at Brest-Litovsk, which mm-hmm. is a whole separate discussion. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> oh boy. Um, 
But um, right, and this is this is the one brother captured one. Yeah, this is the yeah. This is where things escalate, right? You thought it was bad before, um, and it's just it only escalates higher from here. Yeah, no, it just it keeps getting Um, worse. uh, He finds out that his brother, I think, Emilian, has been executed. uh, His family farmstead burned, and his mother uh, unhoused uh, by the Austro-Hungarians. It's not great, and they're looking for him. Um, He already has a bit of a reputation. Uh, One of his cousins is due to be executed by the Austro-Hungarians, if I remember right. And just the rumor that Makhno was nearby had them be like, well, (laughs) ah, that's, oh, um, uh, you should, cell doors open. Uh, We didn't see you. Uh, Give regard to your cousin. Uh, We saw nothing. (laughs) Go with God, buddy. Um, But Makhno also didn't dare uh, go back into Julia Polia immediately. And so was sort of staying in farmhouses and fields around there and... Uh, people write him letters like a friend of a friend will pass it on to him and he writes back. Uh, they ask him, you know, hey, we think that the Jews were involved with helping the Austro-Hungarians take uh, Julia Polie. Uh, should we get revenge? And Magno's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because in the interim, while he was in Moscow, the Austro-Hungarians had taken Julia Polie mm-hmm. with help from the nationalists and all that sort of stuff. Um Magno basically writes back the equivalent of, what the fuck are you talking about? No! Underline eight times. What is wrong with you? He he writes that he thinks that anti-Semitism in that region, uh, in this context, was an imposition from the outside, an attempt to divide uh, the revolution against itself, uh, which probably right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Seems accurate. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm descended from anarchists. It was always because I, you know you, you get it, all the family stories about like they were getting in trouble for having meetings in the woods and mm-hmm. stuff, and then they came here and they were socialists. But like the way it was just like no, we're socialists, we're socialists. It was just very like when I learned a little more about like the anarchist movement and mm-hmm. like Eastern European Jewish communities, I was like, that's familiar. <laughs> that's familiar. Hmm. So I don't know, but I'm suspicious. <laughs> Strong suspicion. I have to, yeah. yeah. My I have to admit, I I I come from uh, apparently communists and socialists who hated each other um, very deeply <laughs> among my Jewish family, and now oh now they're libs, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, as as that that's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of I'm kind of skimming over a yeah, lot yeah. of the like battle maneuvers which are actually super i highly recommend reading the book to get more like in depth with this because he's incredible Mm -hmm. um so it's around this time so he helps reoccupy thank you (laughs) Um, (laughs) and uh i really like how he tried to encourage german troops to go home and start their own revolutions Mm -hmm. like i just yeah the the sort of love it uh, the sort of principle during the civil war but also towards the end of the revolution was anarchist bands or at least ones that Machno uh were involved with the standard move was to shoot the officers and if you could afford it give the the conscripted troops the the infantry or privates money uh sometimes even a train ticket home and just be like yeah go on get out of here shoo uh and they would do this uh with pretty much everyone they fought, not all the time, obviously, but it was common enough that you could predict officers, but enlisted men, eh, go home. You're fine. We we don't have a beef with you. You didn't want to be here. Um, yeah, it's that, it's that class solidarity above yep. 
above all else. And it can be pretty effective. They got a lot of deserters because of this from mm-hmm. both the Red Army, uh, especially from the Red Army. Uh, well, yeah, and that kind of kept them afloat for a little while. Oh, there. yeah. Because um, so they, they retake it. Um, he gets the moniker Batko. Yep. Which means father. Yep. Um, which I just love you look at pictures of him from this era and he's like so little and young looking and people are calling him Botko mm-hmm. and he has like that big furry hat. Like, I just love it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is when we have a lot of, like I said, we're skimming over a lot of the military stuff cause it's just would take forever. Cause, and it's really, really interesting. But the thing that I thought was most notable to me was all of this going back and forth with the red army. Mm-hmm. Cause he went, one thing I thought was really I, I live in West Philly, so I'm around a lot of people that are like, revolution! Um, and I really was impressed by Mokno being like, uh, thinking about the steps along the way to get to where we want to be, mm-hmm. which sometimes meant teaming up with the Bolsheviks, Yeah, um, which didn't work out super well for him, no. but I appreciate the attempt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there's some suspicion... Um... At least I've always quietly held. If if Trot if anyone but Trotsky had been in charge of the Red Army, it might have turned out differently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, my least favorite guy in this whole thing, Leon Trotsky, is uh, the guy responsible for turning uh, the Red Guard, who were uh, basically volunteer uh, militias, like workers' councils, neighborhood. Uh, Basically, larger scale affinity groups mm-hmm. uh, that began in 1917 at, at scale in the cities that, like, you know, successfully defend Petrograd and all that sort of stuff. So, takes it from a volunteer force uh, into a one, a two, a one, two, three, four, and it's a conscript army, baby. Back with the old, uh, back with the old hierarchical systems, different ranks, different pay. Um, Political commissars inserted into it, which is always a very good sign. Um, And so Trotsky is put in charge of this new Red Army, which draws like from all the old satellites of the Russian Empire. Um, It should be, you know, I don't like being fair to Trotsky, but I will. Later in the war, the Machnavists would use conscription as well, but it's hardly the same thing. Their military structure is different. Well, and wasn't, and maybe this is me Mm. mixing up things again, but... Wasn't also part of it is that they would move people to like different parts of the empire. Yep. So like so it took away their base of of um, influence. Yep. Um, exactly right. Um, when the, the anarchists first meet the Bolsheviks, the, the worst variation I've ever heard of when Harry met Sally, um, <laughs> uh, was, I believe, uh, spring and summer of 1919. The Austro-Hungarians are gone at this point. They fucked off. Um, the the anarchists had uh, a pretty strong hand in that uh, from their regions, but they they understand that the the Bolshevik general tactic uh, is to take independent groups or different political affiliations, put them under the auspices of the Red Army, and then station them somewhere far away from their home base. So you can't desert. You can't fight your way back home. And all your bases of support will be uh, destroyed or co-opted while you're in the Red Army. So one of the conditions uh, that the the anarchists insist on in their mass uh, democratic condition-making meetings, which are like thousands of people, 
is that the the Black Army, which is a, a nice short shorthand term for the Insurrectionary Revolutionary Army of Ukraine, uh, and then in parentheses Machnovist, which does not roll off the tongue. No. Uh, so Black Army is easier. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of their conditions, uh, the the deal breaker would be, you know, we cannot be removed from the front against Denikin, who's the White Army general. Um, so they can't be moved from their region, and that they were willing to not join uh, the Red Army uh, if that had, uh, that thing wasn't agreed to. Uh, and it doesn't go well. Trotsky and Makhno hate each other on sight. Uh, I could talk about Pavel Dubenko, who is just like the worst version of Forrest Gump on the Bolshevik side. Like he knows everyone, but he keeps screwing things up constantly. Uh, he he was put in charge of the Red Army in Ukraine just because he was such a pain in the ass to Lenin and he had a Ukrainian last name. So we figured, yeah, no, it'll be fine. Just put Pavel Dubenko in there. It'll be, Jesus, just not here, please. But yeah, so they do join up with the Red Army, but it becomes very clear that the Bolsheviks are not seriously interested in giving uh, the anarchists who keep their own banners, keep their own elected officer system, um, keep their sort of more egalitarian ethic. Uh, they're not interested in actually giving them guns. Uh, they give them, I think, 3,000 Italian martini rifles, which I'm not a gun nerd, but I have gun nerd friends. And I'm like, these things are ridiculously fiddly and they don't even make the same sort of bullets, very specific bullets for them. These are just old bolt action things. Uh, and even then, they weren't in wide use, so they might have just said, here, have these 3,000 ornamental brooms. You can sweep your way across the battlefield. And, yeah, well, that... and, 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 and ammunition was a huge issue. Yeah, huge. They never had enough ammo. Especially um, once the, spoiler, the Bolsheviks go back on their word yep. several times. Several times. Uh, a couple of times by omission, like putting the Black Army... Um, to, in a position where they'll, t they'll take the most casualties or withdrawing support from them. And it gets to be uh, too much. Trotsky is famous for losing the Ukraine a second time to the White Army, almost. Uh, he writes a famous telegram of, there's no chance in hell that Denikin's White Army could possibly... Yeah, when they showed up, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> We're done with these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, he writes a telegram saying, uh, the Ukraine is under no threat from Denikin. And then next day, oh, shit, I have to abandon Rostov. The White Army is here. Um, second telegram. Whoops. Oops. Um, anyway, so they abandon the anarchists. Um, and Makhno, in turn, uh, ultimately breaks off his alliance with the Red Army uh, because he knows which way this is going. Uh, which means that he has to uh, fight the Reds and the Whites kind of at the same time. And this is, I think, the moment when, I mean, he was impressive up to this point. Mm. But I thought that this sort of this, la the, this last like moment that he had that picture in there of like Makhno, like sort of fr from, from like the Soviet archives of mm. him like making his way around the region. Um, he like just the hit and run, just the military tactics of, I, of not having enough anything. Mm. But he still like was incredibly successful. Like in the end, obviously we know how this goes. In in the end, he has he he you know lives in exile. But like the amount of time that he just hung on there is incredible. Especially like he was sick again. They're like carrying him around on like a cart. Like oh my god, yeah. No. <laughs> he gets shot in the stomach, and he's like still like 
commanding troops like this guy <laughs> yeah no oh my goodness he he gets i think i think the, the count is 12 major wounds in the co- course of the russian civil war uh ranging from a, a pretty you know you know from the safety of never someone who's never had a horrible facial scar pretty bitchin see uh scar across his cheek to just Cuts and gunshot wounds everywhere. So 12 plus, uh, of course, in 1919, there was a giant uh, typhus outbreak that killed about 2 million people. He got that. I think it was typhus. If I'm, if I I'm think wrong. it was typhus. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like in this era, if you're not sure about an illness, there's a. if you guess either typhus or tuberculosis, you'll probably be right 75% of the time. Yeah. And tuberculosis is what ultimately yes. does him <laughs> in, right? Um, yeah, no. He, he was uh, definitely... He wasn't bad at strategy, but he definitely didn't like leading from behind. Uh, and there often was honestly wasn't... good for him, man. Yeah, there often weren't enough troops to lead from behind anyway. So everyone. <laughs> yeah, when involved. you say not enough troops, like for the people at home who have not read the book yet, you should read the book. Um, we're talking like hundreds, like yeah. against like army-sized armies, yep. like, and they would win. Yeah, they their uh, their general principle uh, seemed to be that uh, attacking is not a bad idea, and if you have the advantage in cavalry and uh, tachanka, which are basically horse carts with you just staple your old heavy machine gun on the back there, you have kind of the the first sort of proto tactical, uh, and off you go. Uh, doesn't matter that there's not any ammo for the heavy machine gun. Are you going to bet that the the horse cart with the heavy machine gun barreling toward you just happens to not have machine gun? Ah, I'm going to be running this way, please. And also has the commander on it who's been shot again, but he's still going. He doesn't seem to notice. He's still going. Yeah. Um. So eventually, though, there's only so long this can go on. Yeah. Um. Lenin orders Makhno liquidated, which we've skipped over all the many, many times people have tried to assassinate Makhno. Oh, yeah. Uh, my personal favorite being the one where they invited him to, like, dinner. A fancy dinner. A fancy dinner. And poisoned the food, and it didn't work. Two different types of poison. Yeah, this is yeah. Polonsky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, to to a- add sort of salt to the wound, Mikhail Polonsky uh, is someone Makhno has known for a while. Um, that also seems to come up a lot, too. Like, people he knew... And maybe even liked at some point. Yeah. Try to kill him. Like, mo- like so often. A whole bunch of times. Like. <laughs> um, yeah. So Polanski uh, joined the Bolsheviks kind of late. Went back. Uh, joined the Moknavis. And orchestrated this uh, poisoning plot with his wife, who was a professional actress. And a bunch of other people. But their plan was found out by the, the anarchist counterintelligence. So they knew it was coming. Uh, the poisoning surprise did not work because you don't eat food that's been laced with strychnine. Um, not if you can help uh, it. <laughs> but this actually is a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a scandal in the sense of you know all the conspirators are rounded up and uh, they're they're to be taken to counterintelligence headquarters. But surprise, surprise, they're not. They're taken out and shot by the side of a river. Yeah. Uh, mm. And what Makino gets put on. Uh, probation for and brought up before the anarchist councils for is that he had the paperwork forged to say that they were uh, tried, convicted, we found poison here, and they were executed with due process, basically, which was absolutely not the case. There, there wasn't enough time to confirm 
that everything had been poisoned. And it's a really tense meeting because, like, as we talked about, Machno, high-strung guy. Uh, we have Balash, who's one of our sources, and Voline, who's a, a anarchist writer, uh, who actually makes it to Paris with Machno, and they have a long, acrimonious relationship, are both on the panel, and they're like, hey, you know, this executing people out of hand thing is uh, kind of a not cool thing to do. Uh, don't lie about the paperwork. And Machno try, tries to pull his gun on them and has to be, like, wrestled out of the room. Uh, Voline calls Machno, I think, at this point, according to Balash, uh, a Napoleon, which is what you would call people before uh, Hitler was around, and a drunk, which is a pretty sick burn, uh, considering. Um, so there's this sort of authoritarian creep uh, that comes with being in a civil war, which is like the worst possible thing that can happen because your trust in other people, even people you've known, starts to get sort of like acid washed away and Machno starts taking increasingly personal control of things. Uh, even for, you know, an avowed anarchist, there are these outside pressures that shape your behavior in ways that, you know, your pre-Civil War self would be like, yo, what the fuck, man? Um, yeah, I mean, you can tell there's definitely this cult of personality thing yeah, it's that is happening. A danger and... then and a danger now, yeah. I think. Um, so he, he uh, has to flee Ukraine, yeah. which is... In of itself every part of this this man's life is a wild story um but uh he bounces around a little bit he ends up in romania um but in the end he ends up in paris which sucks yeah he paris paris not not very nice if you're if yeah you're there as he a didn't speak the language he only spoke russian and a little bulgarian right russian and bulgarian um maybe. he tried to work in a factory but he was too sick he was homesick and he actually fell into a really like gnarly depression. Oh yeah. And tried to die by suicide. Uh yeah, even just getting to Paris was a miracle. Yeah, no, he he tries to kill himself twice before he even makes it there and both times he's uh saved by emergency services. Uh the second time I think he breaks himself out of the hospital uh <laughs> because he's terrified of the Cheka who are not not around. Finding him in a weakened state, even though this is, I think, in Danzig in Germany. The check just because we haven't mentioned them yet are secret police. Yeah, secret police. Not your friends. Um, not now or ever, ideally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like there's there's vicious depression on his part. Um, uh, I think the, the, the bright parts of his life are his daughter, Yelena, mm -hmm. uh, who he absolutely adored. Uh, um, Ida Met said that he would fall into intense recrimination whenever he had to smack his daughter for being naughty. He's like, oh, no, what have I done? I'm like, that's a, that's a I read that, and I was yeah. like, you could try not hitting you, her. You, what if I told you <laughs> that you could skip those steps? Oh, early 20th century. Oh, boy. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, and a big part of this moment in his life in Paris is also the, helping to write the platform, Yep. which I found deeply fascinating on several levels, um, not knowing nearly as much as I should about anarchist history of like that he was like you know the problem with the anarchist movement is that every individual place it's slightly different we should have it all be the same and that would be like more marketable mm -hmm. and on the one hand I'm like I mean sure but like also isn't part of the point that like individual places have their own ways of doing things and it works for individual communities <laughs> But uh, apparently I wasn't the only one who thought this was weird mm -hmm. because after this comes out, 
a lot of like heavy hitters are like, what is this? Yeah. Like Goldman, I think. Yep. Was like, no. <laughs> Berkman too. Yeah. Uh, uh, our girl Molly Steimer, who my illustrator is uh, a huge fan of and, uh, you know, can talk all day about, uh, definitely comes out against it. Um, basically, Makhno's, uh, Makhno and Arshinov, uh, if you may remember him from earlier. Yeah, I do. Um, he's popping up. Yeah, I know. He's like a fungus. Um, <laughs> Uh, basically argue that the anarchists have been out organized and that they need to have like a central committee and they need to agree on the following lines and policy positions. Da, 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 da. And for everyone else who'd lived through the Russian Civil War um, and escaped the Bolsheviks, they're like, oh, so you just want to Bolshevize anarchism was their take. And to be fair to Makhno, uh, the first edition of the platform did suffer from like really bad translations. So, like, that doesn't help you, even if, like, if, you know, you believe as Berkman and uh, Goldman and Steimer and even Malatesta did, that this is a fundamentally mistaken uh, assumption. A bad translation will make your response a lot harsher. So, you know, there's that sort of early platform, uh, anarchism as a political party, energy to it. And it's also just a bad time for it. Like, mm -hmm. Paris in 1920s and 30s is like lousy with, so you got the regular cops, you got the the Czechists uh, that are definitely there and can infiltrate. You've got just general repression where anything seen as against French national interests was taken as proof of whatever, and you're deported back to your home country where you're usually not welcome. So the early platform is is not, not great. Uh, Makhno did not do himself any favors by repeatedly picking what I guess you could call like analog flame wars with other anar anarchists. Like if yeah, at one point, didn't somebody say like, you need to stop? Mm -hmm. Like Yeah, Berkman <laughs> writes to uh, Machno, uh, writes a circular and then just pastes it everywhere, uh, telling Machno to lay off Voline. Like, oh my God, we have so many bigger problems uh, than your beef with Voline, who you're yelling at for being too much of like a, a man of letters and not enough of uh, a man of action. Right. Yeah. Um, it just, he, yeah. you can, you can really see like how, like just in that sort of thing, not that he wasn't high, high strung and high tempered mm -hmm. before that, but like you can really see it coming out. Oh yeah. No, he, as like time goes on and he's like getting more and more ill and like is just miserable. Yeah. It's, it's Paris is not, not a great city for Machno. Um, the the kind of unkindest part of the, this part of his life is it's so similar to his childhood, yeah. uh, but worse, right? In his childhood, he could understand what's going on. He doesn't like it, but like he's not cut off from the world in the same way. Yeah, and then unfortunately, he does pass away at the age of forty three from yep. tberculosis or complications of tuberculosis because there was some like malnutrition stuff going on. Too, yeah, wasn't no, there? he was so not young. This yeah. all happened in not as long of a period of time as I thought. I know, right? Nope. Like, what if I, like, when you go, if you go to the Wikipedia, they actually, like, usually Wikipedia will be, like, summer of whatever, like, when they talk about, like, timeliney stuff. Yeah. For Makhno, they say the exact month because you can't say summer of 1917 because so many things happen between July and September. Wow. Like, Oh, yeah. No, you have to be hyper-specific with Makhno. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and 
I, I really liked how, so how you kind of wrap the book up, which I think is a good place to wrap up here too, is sort of the legacy of Machno. Mm. Um, because, you know, here in the U.S., I think a lot of us don't really know who he is. I mean, I sure didn't. Um, but he's, especially as, as, as the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, um, he's become something of a, like, a, a, I mean, he was a figure mm. before that, but right. I think even more so. Um, like, he's got a statue. Mm -hmm. um you said you have a coin with his face on it yep. which i'm sure he would love absolutely that mm -hmm. would be great that's sarcasm he would hate it very much <laughs> yeah it's sort of the che guevara ization oh boy yeah. of Machno. what would you say would be like the important things to take from his legacy and uh from this you know you you've you've taken this very like complex broad life mm. and made it into this digestible place like what should people be taking from Machno's life hmm um I, th I think the the best thing that can be taken or among the best thing amongst our weaponry are such diverse <laughs> elements as um the sort of to resist the the uh, impulse to make him or anyone else really in into a hero I don't think that that's a helpful framework for doing practical anarchist or generally uh, progressive things. Um, the There's a sub-theme in the book about by having heroes, we betray ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Machno, uh, despite his very much love of both the spotlight and of doing cool, th doing the thing, uh, would probably agree uh, with the, 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 uh, the construct of a hero is uh detrimental to us acting in the way that we know to be right in, in a very fundamental way yeah and i i like i like that i like how it fits in with then the title no harmless power which mm -hmm. comes from another thing that i forgot no th that's mock um, that's um, mock right so like this idea that like it, especially as we, we talked a little bit about how like he went from being i mean he never i don't think stopping an idealist but like the, the civil war war on him yeah a lot. Um, and he started doing things that, you know, 10, you know, less than a decade before he would have been like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Um, and I think that's an important lesson to take. So I definitely agree. Um, and I think your book does a really good job of like deheroifying him. Like he is not deified yeah. at all in this book. And I think that's really important with all historical figures. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he's very much a man in yeah. this. And I, I really like that. So I definitely recommend to everybody pick up uh, No Harmless Power by Charlie Allison from PM Press. In yeah. in the closer I'm going to record on my own when I edit, I'll have more details. Uh, but we are going to have a giveaway. I have two copies of this book to do a giveaway on social media. Um, do you so, want them signed? Yes, please. Alrighty. I was going to ask, but I was Yay. like, I shouldn't just say that on the mic. Because then if you're like, nah, I'd be like, oh, well, never mind, not signed. <laughs> Local author refuses to autograph the <laughs> Listen, you don't know. People are weird. Um, <laughs> you, you never lose money betting that people are weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be information forthcoming, if not already out, about how you can get your hands on this book. With It's beautiful artwork. It's so gorgeous. Like, it's really great. Fantastic job. Um, there's so many other things I wanted to talk about with it, but we are going to get kicked out in five minutes. So, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, did you, you want to so plug much. anything else? Sorry. Uh, 
no, besides continue listening to D-Listers of History. It's Thank fantastic. You. I love it Yay. to little pieces. Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. A huge thank you to April Keys for the use of the song Misfit from her album Mountain View. You can find her on all the various social media platforms. And speaking of social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Delicious of History, no hyphens. And if you head over to our Instagram sometime today, Monday, when this comes out, uh, there will be information about the contest to win a copy of No Harmless Power by Charlie Allison. If you're not already friends with us on Instagram, go ahead and friend us and post a picture of you enjoying the podcast or whatever you like this podcast related with the hashtag delisters of history and you'll be entered into that contest there'll be more information like i said on instagram a big shout out to the folks supporting us on patreon if you want to support us and get access to all, all sorts of exclusive content become a patron of the program all of this and more can be found on our website, delistersofhistory.com. Again, no hyphens. Let's smush that together. Uh, we also recently opened a merch store, which you can also access from the website. And now for an episode-relevant audio drop. <laughs> Нам слаб 